I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Rob Short. You're in trouble. You're in luck. It's the great concavity. <laughs> I love it. Yes! Oh. I love that that part of Infinite Jest. You're in luck is is like one of my favorite gags in the whole novel. So that is that's a solid opener, Rob. Thank you for that. I, I agonized. Our guest today is Michael Pemulus. <laughs> the Peemster himself. A savage off the lob. P.S. Wolf spiders ruleth the land. <laughs> awesome, Rob. Welcome, man. You are on episode 13 of The Great Concavity. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So, Rob, you are a Wallace Scholar from Gainesville, Florida. Tell us a little bit about your sort of academic background, uh, what you do with Wallace. Uh, academic background. I, um, I am a sixth-year PhD, which really mathematically shouldn't <laughs> be, be possible. They shouldn't still be letting me do this, but <laughs> I promised them that I'm going to wrap up here in December. Um, nice. But, yeah, the, the dissertation is, is basically... Uh, I'm looking at the difference between how theory works in his first novel and David Foster Wallace's second novel. Um, mm-hmm. As a, I'm using a recovery studies frame because it has this mm, sort cool. of built-in three-part structure. Um, like, of all, it's a sort of like er addict thing, like the way we were, what happened, and what we're like now. And mm. so I'm doing Broom of the System, the inner novel period, and then Infinite Jest, sort of mapping cool. it onto that trajectory. Awesome. So, Rob, we've talked about you on the podcast before. You and Matt are currently doing a writing project on SimpleRanger.net, sort of like along a similar timeline as Infinite Winter, would you guys say? Yeah. yeah. More or yeah. less. Yeah. Pretty much. And you guys are, you guys are looking quite a bit at, at the concept of addiction and the AA portions of the book, particularly. So that kind of coincides with what you're writing in your dissertation. Yeah, cool. I'm. Uh, I, I forgot to add in that I'm sort of casting him as a recovering theory addict. Hmm. Um, Sweet. And so that it kind of dovetails with the personal <laughs> addiction. Yeah, yeah. Like, as in literary theory, recovering from. Yes. Yeah, that's that's a cool way to think of it. Because there's the whole the whole stuff about him being like young and showoffy in Broom of the System, like a, displaying his kind of theory weeniness. And yeah, then, yeah, the chops are on display in, uh, right. in Broom. And then he comes to sort of regret that a little bit and, and change his tune going into jest. Yeah, he slags that yeah. first novel all over the place. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, and that, this reminds cool. me that it was something Rob and I sort of bonded over last year was uh, about this very subject. And when Wallace, I think, changes between those two novels, he gives an interview to Speak Magazine. Yeah. And... And in that Speak Magazine interview, Rob and I both had trouble tracking it down, but we eventually tracked it down and got, uh, you know, the, te- the original text of it posted up. And uh, I found that to be just really uh, a fascinating interview, sort of lesser known interview, where he just comes out and says, you know, at the time he really was trying to show off this technical chops about, you know, his knowledge of theory and, and analytical philosophy. And then he realized that's right. not why people read novels. Right. Yeah. So he yeah. chucked to that. Yeah, he says um, something like, you know, the first go around, I uh, got rid of the emotion 
for the technique and now uh, you know I know people read for different reasons and I would get rid of the technique to save the emotion right I love that line yeah. I love that yeah it's cool I love that I had to get my copy of that out of the old editor Dan Rolleri's mother's basement in California <laughs> and get him to send it to me <laughs> oh wow yeah this it's a that's, defunct that's magazine rigorous. Right? it's a defunct magazine oh <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> Well, good job sleuthing that, Rob. He was super gracious about it, so if <laughs> by chance he's listening, thank you very much. That's cool. So Matt and Rob, how long have you guys known each other for? Well, I think Go just a, a few years. A couple of years at the, the Wallace conferences. I mean, I, yeah. I was really impressed whenever I got to see uh, Rob's paper last year at the yeah. Wallace conference. And we had, we had met up and talked at the 2014 conference. But uh, the one last year, if I'm not correct, but my paper that year was garbage. No, it was not. It was not garbage. It was not garbage. But uh, uh, I honestly don't even remember what it was. So how could I say it's garbage? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. What What was your 2014 paper on, Rob? Uh, <laughs> It was, it's, it's funny because like I've, I've sort of managed to riff on the same thing. What if they take me, take my, um, my proposal this year will be three years in a row. Um, but I, I sort of pitched it. No, last year was the novel of ideas one, which I, I figured out on the back end. I got really embarrassed about because, um, the title of my paper, David Foster Wallace in the postmodern novel of ideas was, which I ended up not wanting to use but in the meantime like after i'd submitted it i found out that adam adam kelly has a, a published article <laughs> with the exact same name and i was mortified oh, when i found no. out um but let me see if i can pull this up um i'll get back to you on the uh, the first <laughs> no, no, paper no that's fine um i i remember though that we we had talked about a lot of other things and really the idea for you know the the project we're doing now really stems from some conversations that you and I had had about Wallace's ideas about recovery and the way that they're represented in Infinite Jest. And really, I was sort of reading him through the lens of you know stuff he wrote after that. Hmm. And I, I, Rob and I, Rob can tell you that we got really hung up on the idea of worshiping, and that yeah, and that in you know the famous speech, "This is water." what's now called this is water i used to mm-hmm. just call it the kenyan commencement speech but yeah. he says you know everyone worships mm-hmm. and to me this was really key because if everyone worships then he, there is no such thing as atheism mm-hmm. as and to me he's conflating two different things there but he's also like using this aa idea right that if there's no such thing as atheism then everyone has a higher power mm-hmm. right everyone even if worships. it's even if it's satan <laughs> Even if it's Satan, I mean that's. To... I think there's somebody in Infinite Jest that does pick Satan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the guy's name? Is it Keith or is it no? Uh, um, let me let me dig. It's one of my favorite parts. It's not Randy Lins, is it? <laughs> no, it's not Randy Lins. <laughs> I wish. Okay, actually, all right. I, I, while you're digging that up, I did find the first one. It was called After the Theory Wars: Rehabilitating the Human and Wallace's Infinite Jest. Right. And it was basically about like my my beef with. Um, theory like post-structuralism and um and i saw the sort of similar thing uh in wallace not not that he's beefing with them but he sees parts as more useful than others and it was it was sort of about a a personal history and a a reader's history of encountering him 
and the commonalities there. And what I like about, you know, what I was really drawn to with your academic writing is that it was very clear that you were not only trying to make like an academic point, but trying to, you know, communicate to people in the room, which, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's true. But like, no, that's a huge compliment. No, I'm, I'm dead serious. But like, if you've never been to an academic conference before, Ooh, you might be man. surprised to hear that people will often just stand up and read a bunch of jargon that is com- staring at the lectern. Yeah. And they're just completely <laughs> oblivious to the whole room. And to me, that's like very off-putting, and I find it very jarring. It's very shocking that they're actually not even looking up, you know, at right. the rest of the room. Right. And and your work, you know, in in a, in a textual sense, I think does that, and that it looks up at what's going on around you, and and you know, uses the the language of everyday life to try to communicate. So that's one reason why I was really drawn to your paper. Well, that's a really that's a really kind thing for you to say. Thank you, because I it was it was a struggle for me to sort of get out of that mode of writing because I I would go back and read stuff I'd I'd written and I thought, Jesus, who who would want to read this? You know, <laughs> even if you were interested in the subject matter, it's so buried in in you know terminology that I want to look impressive or try to speak the the language of of that sort of discourse community. But it was like, you know, if I'm going to do any justice to this material with Wallace that sort of derailed my whole academic career to studying him, <laughs> I have to write in a way that that people would want to read it, you know, because if, if the whole point is to communicate it and to get it, get it in front of as many eyes as possible, mm. you know, you kind of have to do that. Well, yeah. and it seems like a lot of academics don't have that luxury and that they – you know, have to prove themselves first by saying, oh, I can write this amount of jargon and this amount of, you know, showing that I'm actually smarter than you. I can write something that no one can understand. Yeah, and that's, can that's sort of the mark of like, oh, you must be a genius then. <laughs> and Yeah. Showing and, that you can rap. <laughs> and, you know, more established, I think more established writers, whether they're academics or not, sort of, they don't have to bother with that. And they can... You know, they have the luxury of just writing what they, you know, that's maybe a more straightforward style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're, you know, Derrida. <laughs> God, <laughs> which, God. which, like, I can't understand Derrida for the life of me at all. Well, that's, Small that's portions, by design. But yeah, totally. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. But when people are super into him, I'm just like, man, I don't know. Like, he's, he's, he's purposely being obtuse, and I don't know if that's something that I dig. He's playing. Actually, you got to be careful. You're going to alienate sections of the listenership. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I, I dig some Derrida for sure, but you know what I mean? Like, some of it's just like, oh, man, you're just killing me here. It you just feels, I, I don't know, my major beef is that it just feels irresponsible. Like, <laughs> you know, he did eventually come around to, to um, offering some ways forward and, and some solutions rather than just saying the history of the West from Plato to yesterday is fucked and I'm going to tear it down. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. you may have to bleep that. Sorry. No, we can put the E on. It's fine. Okay. Uh, speaking of the F word, I f- it's so it's Glenn K, the guy who's uh, ch- personally chosen oh. high power Satan. Glenn K, not that's Keith. Right. I said Keith, but like Keith Freer. That's um, that's like Glenn Kenny. I wonder if that's Glenn Kenny. Who's Glenn Kenny? You don't know Glenn Kenny? Glenn. I don't think Glenn so. Glenn Kenny is Harold Hecuba in Big Red Sun. And he's a real like film critic that, oh you know, yeah, okay. He commissioned Wallace to write some stuff for Premiere magazine, uh. um, and he's uh, wrote a pretty 
pretty nasty piece um, yeah. tr- trashing the end of the tour. Oh, yeah. Um, so, anyways, Glenn, Glenn K., that's interesting. Um, <laughs> one, one thing I wanted to sort of, you know, relate this back to Wallace is that he struggled with this, too, and that I was trying to originally say what you were, your first paper where you're talking about Broom of the System, Wallace was very much trying to write something that was impressive, you know, and to impress other people when you're 24, it seems more vital, uh, you know, although I think Wallace oh, did a, a little bit of that in 2003 with the, the math book. It's basically like mm. incomprehensible to most of us in a way, <laughs> Yeah, you know, to, to prove that he could do it in a way. I think he was really invested in showing how smart he was. Yeah, I found the first hundred or so pages of that book manageable. Like, yeah, I can I can track with this, you know, like I have a history degree and I can sort of understand some of these concepts in a, in a context, historical context. But after once he starts getting into the Cantor stuff, I was absolutely lost forever. Nah. <laughs> oh, you guys are talking about the um, the Every, Infinity book, right. everything and more. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I was I was actually thinking the fate, time, and language. Oh, thing. that's that's oh, no, that's yeah. insane. <clears throat> I was like, you hung that's, with that for a hundred pages. <laughs> I I hung in with fate, time, and language. I I read all of it, like even like the preamble essays, but I, I did not have a fun time doing it. <laughs> it was basically just to read it because <laughs> Wallace wrote it. You know. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, is a slog. I mean, but that's something that he wrestled with, right? And I mean, to me, this issue, I just find it sort of ironic that it even comes up at the David Foster Wallace conference, right? Mm. That we sh- we should still be struggling with this choice between do you write in a way that is nearly incomprehensible, but to try to impress people that are you know at a conference. Or do you write in a way that is actually trying to communicate something using more, you know, accessible language? Right. Yeah. yeah. I I don't know. Speaking is like, I mean, it's I can do that now because I've done conferences and and have spoken mm-hmm. in front of people and you know taught classes for a while now. So being behind a, a podium in front of a room full of people, um, you know, doesn't scare me as much as it used to. Yeah. Um, but like when I was a you know a first year MA and applying to the first conference where I gave a paper. I was mortified because <laughs> you're, you know, I just imagined this nightmare scenario where I, I go and I make my argument and then, you know, you and do then the tomatoes. Q&A. Yeah. Well, you, you yeah. do the Q and a and somebody like, I don't know that you've written about their work you've written about or something stands up in the back of the audience. It's like, no son, that's not what I meant at all. Yeah. That's a huge fear of mine too. Yeah. So my very first conference paper was last year and actually Rob, you and I met because we were on the same panel together. That's right. And then you and I actually, I probably hung out with you more than almost anybody else that weekend. We had a good great. time. Yeah. It was awesome, man. Um, so I know what you mean, like getting up in front of that crowd, uh, you know, Mike Miley, Dave Herring were in the audience and I was kind of a bit nervous. Like I, I could be way out to lunch here. Matt but... <laughs> Booker's in the audience. Matt Booker's in the audience. Oh, yeah, please. I'm like uh, the least you have to worry about. <laughs> well, it all worked out in the end, I guess. Right. So yeah. I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> so can we talk about that a little bit? Because both of you guys have taught Wallace and like I'm not a teacher and I would like to sort of pick your brains a little bit about yeah. like what what that's like mm-hmm. and sure. like how how you would build a syllabus. Rob, could you talk about like the first time you taught Wallace? Do you remember? Um, I, the first time I taught Wallace was back in in Alabama at UAB uh, mm-hmm. in Birmingham, and I taught the first thing of his that I ever taught was the commencement speech. Yeah, cool. Um, and 
sort of I, – I traditionally – I think that year, the first year, I, I actually gave it as an assignment um, because I was teaching a writing class, like a freshman comp class, where you have different units like um, exposition, persuasion, you know, et cetera, et cetera, position paper, compare and contrast, things like that. And one of the things that they do before they start writing is they do uh, an analysis paper. And so I, I gave them the text of that, and we listened to it in class, and, and I had them sort of do, it like in a classical Greek sense, like analysis, like pulling a part of um, what he's saying, and like have them outline, basically write an outline of the argument and, and you know, identify his thesis and his, his support and evidence right. and stuff like that. Yeah. Cool. And then, and then you've gone on and you've taught an entire course on Wallace, right? I did. Uh, yeah. My students told me that it should have been subtitled A Thousand Different Kinds of Sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's like but, what we talked about last time with Dave Herring, like that question, you know, all of this stuff in Infinite Jest is so sad. Is there any positivity, you know, in his work? Yeah, I actually um, got a concordance app with, and loaded up Infinite Jest into it and searched for the word joy. <laughs> so to see if it was no joy like J-O-Y yeah, yeah. to see if I it know, was in there and um, it comes up I think 12 times yeah. and sad comes up 94 times oh yeah so like, <laughs> I could see how they would be left with that impression yeah um, but I, I totally agree with what Matt said last week which is you know like when is the subject of literature I'm botching the quote but ever been happiness you know? right yeah yeah it just doesn't make for a very good book yeah yeah. Exactly right. Unless you're like, like ah. Somerset Mom, I think maybe like The Razor's Edge has some really joyful self-discovery <laughs> parts in it. <laughs> so, other than the sadness thing, how uh, tell us a bit about the course, how it went, uh, student response. Um, it was like easily the best course that I ever taught. Mm-hmm. Um, just on, you know, my measure is is how how engaged do the students get, and yeah. um, I had. Our discussion spilled over every single day. It was only a 50-minute class. It met three times a week. Hmm. And um, we were always getting kicked out by the next yeah. class. Like, I'm you sure. know, we need the room now. <laughs> and um, they would kind of bow up on them. Like, we were really in the middle of something. They would be like, just just a minute. Hang on. <laughs> um, but we eventually had to make a Google group um, so that the discussion could sort of spill over into that. And that's right. part of why I'm in my sixth year is because I lost every bit of my writing time to that class yeah, um, because they just couldn't stop talking about the material. And, you know, I don't think it was any sort of magic that, that I was doing. I wasn't responsible for it. It was the material that I put in front of them. And um, I, I knew when I was making the syllabus, it was sort of like um, a gallery of what will they let me get away with um, mm. teaching to freshmen? Cause like I had them read yeah. all the brief interviews right. yeah, <laughs> and um like in terms of content here, like censorship kind of stuff? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was afraid that they, you know, I mean, I've taught Bukowski and stuff, but that's a little more canonical right. if it's, I mean, if you can even say that about him. But with Wallace, it was, <laughs> what? it was, well, it's, I mean, it's other people have taught it at UF. Like, I don't think right. anybody had ever right. taught Wallace here at UF. And yeah. so, um, yeah, but it was it was they were so engaged. I had a kid who who two weeks into the class at the end of drop ad came to me and he said, um, "I really want to keep taking this class. I actually don't even really go to my other classes much. I just <laughs> come to this one." Um, but it, my advisor told me that I already have a credit for the slot that this fills mm. in my degree program. Is it okay 
if I just come and sit in the back and sort just of like audio audit. class. Yeah. Yeah. And did he? Did he follow through on that? He did. Um, he didn't. Cool. He didn't show up like I was checking a box by his name at the beginning of class, but he was there most of the time and he really kept the discussion going on the Google group long after the actual term was over. Oh, that's amazing. How many students did you have in that class? It was at the cap. It was 18. 18. Rad. You you know, Wallace uh, was taught, I I took a class in the fall of 1997 where the, the teacher was a writer uh, but it was a it was a literature course, and for the textbook, she used this Norton anthology called Postmodern American Fiction. Mm-hmm. It had just come out. It had just come out, and I thought it was such a cool looking book because it had like a UFO on the cover <laughs> of it. Right. And and I remember she taught us. My teacher uh, was named Beth Nugent, who, if you've never read her books, like she has two books, go get them. They're amazing. But she taught Linden. And I oh, was yeah. just like, wow, I, it was, it was a weird selection to be at one in that <laughs> book. And like with the rest of the course, you know, the, the other stuff was pretty gritty and like really contemporary. And at Linden, it was just like, I was just like, man, I could take it or leave it, whatever. I don't know who this Wallace guy is. You know, like, <laughs> the, the infinite Jess guy wrote this, you know, I was like, I didn't even really make the connection that it was like, oh, yeah. even in the same wheelhouse, it felt so different. Mm. Um, yeah. But there were people even, you know, this is going back 20 years, you know, almost 20 years now that were teaching Wallace. But it, it, I think there's a lot different of teaching him really after 2008. Eight. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I say that as not neither a teacher or a student, but really as a reader, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I still get it's my syllabus for that course is like I have one of those academia.edu accounts. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the, the syllabus that I uploaded to that is far and away the most um like i get the most hits from google and stuff for that oh yeah 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 did you see uh josh roiland's syllabus for the current course he's teaching on wallace i have not hmm. he posted it i think it was it on twitter maybe a I'll couple months ago yeah I'll, I'll send it your way but yeah i can imagine that being like such a fun project just even sitting down to write up okay what is the stuff that we're gonna do from wallace's entire body of work you know it's, I imagine it's, that's it was pretty a daunting. Tough choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you it was a it was a nice experience going to the uh, to the university bookstore and looking for my course like you know on the little yeah, dot yeah. matrix printout label that they have and then underneath it seeing all this Wallace. Oh, and uh, so good. That's awesome. I remember as a as an undergrad student of just going through those aisles and just buying stuff from other classes just because I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I would be like, oh, Bukowski, I'll buy that. Yeah. Right. Or oh, they get to read Wind Up Bird Chronicle in that class. Yeah. Like what? I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I would buy it even though it's like not even a sign. I'm not taking the class. Yeah, totally. <laughs> sort of reevaluate your class choices based on the bookstore. Yeah. No, it just goes to show that I've always been bad at following directions. And that, <laughs> I was like, no, nah, I don't want to read that. It's like, we're assigned to that. We have to read it. I was like, I don't want to read. I'm going to read what I want to read. <laughs> right. I had them, um, let's see, I had three texts of Wallace's that I had them buy. It was um, Brief Interviews, Consider the Lobster, and then we read all of the Pale King at the end of oh, the cool. class. Yeah. And then they, I had them buy uh, Boswell's Understanding, David Foster Wallace, and mm. um, that uh, collection that Byrne edited the conversations with yeah, David Foster. The it, was, it had just come yeah. out then. Yeah, cool. So what were some of the big hits uh, from the students' perspective? What were some of the pieces that really resonated with them or sections of the course that were particularly, you know, grabbing? 
Man, um, I remember um, Big Red Sun mm-hmm. was a was an, sure. a was an event. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, I'm looking at the syllabus, and that that, that August 27th was Big Red Sun drop ad ends, and uh, they had a handout that I gave them called Postmodernism in a Nutshell. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was a rough day. Like a scrotum, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, if you like. Um, mm. Let's see. I, I remember the last brief interview, the day that we did that, was was a hell of a day. It was, the, it was actually the first day uh, that I ever heard the phrase trigger warning. Oh, yeah, I bet. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And I, I, there, was, there were a couple of students... Um, I'm not breaking any FERPA laws if I don't say anything other than a couple of students, but I had a couple of students in that class who would email me and say, uh, like the night before class, like, I've, I've just read this material and it's really messed me up and right. um, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to come in tomorrow and if I'm there, please don't call on me because it's like I don't want to talk about this. Right. So, And I had never had anything like that happen before and I would I would try to to get in their face with some of the stuff, especially at the beginning of class, mm-hmm. um, just to sort of provoke them into a response, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, cause I try to give them stuff that I like to read. I don't, I don't like to teach stuff that I don't like to, to read. And totally. I, this class is, I really got to turn that up to 11. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see what else was good. Did you guys do any portions of infinite jest in that class? We did not. Okay. Um, I just there just wasn't time. Yeah, um, I'm sure that's the pinch for sure. Yeah, we we closed. The only other thing that we did was we closed with um, with the "This Is Water" benediction uh, <laughs> playing. <laughs> it was like the last day of class. Hmm. Uh, wish you may uh, way more than luck, kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt, do you know if uh, is Josh Royland doing Infinite Jest the entire book with that class? I think he uh, is. I think he is, yeah. and I think that we will have them on a future episode, and we're going to talk to his class actually because yeah. that they have been fully immersed in Wallace Holy since Moses. January. Yeah, January, I think, and that his kids are like really super smart, you know, undergrads, so they're just really reading Wallace. Yeah, isn't that so impressive? They're fitting Infinite Jest and like a huge amount of other Wallace stuff into it's bewildering. I can't imagine doing anything other than I know. Right? I mean, is a semester longer than than Infinite Winter, or? Uh, yeah, I, I guess, guess. No. Uh, semester is like what three months, yeah. four including Ooh. including exam period. Or yeah, so. four or so. And Infinite Winter is like three months ish. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's doable. But they're doing tons of other stuff as well as Infinite Jest. It's pretty bonkers. I mean, there the first course that I ever heard of that was solely about. Wallace's work was Kathleen Fitzpatrick taught a course Mm. Um, and she she had written something on her blog planned obsolescence she had written about Mm -hmm. uh, teaching his work while he was down the hall in Pomona (laughs) yeah yeah while they were while they were both in Pomona Mm -hmm. and you know they sort of had this understanding of like yeah you kind of know what I'm doing but you know should I even ask you to come and speak to the class even <laughs> once? Not really. You know, he didn't really want to acknowledge it, it was professional, you know, courtesy. But uh, I really don't think that he wrote any of his stuff with like academia in mind. Oh, there's no way. You know, like I think his assumed readership was much, much broader. Mm-hmm. And so I think for him, it was hard for him to reckon with because 
on one hand, he is a university, he was a university professor, and he very much taught other people's work. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, he was a writer producing work that he knew was being taught in university courses. And I don't even think he thinks about the audience until after Bruma. I think there's a letter to Franzen where he says, um, you know, it was in the Max bio that, that, you know, I regard... I don't. I don't have any regard for the reader at all. That it, it's a, it's his choice to read my stuff and expend his energy on it, and then that completely changes by the time, you know, he gets around to around nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety. I I don't know how you write and not think of the audience, though. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's um, a puzzle. I guess if you're just writing to show off, you, you know. You do some set pieces and some high wire. You know, he called it verbal stunt pilotry. <laughs> um, he's like, I got, I, I, you know, you got a punch list. I got to make sure I hit these sort of meta conventions and and forms and, right. um, you know, get the laugh in here and, you know, nod to Derrida, nod to Wittgenstein. <laughs> that I'm dumb. I'm done. Um, you know, what's interesting though is he starts sending out the work pretty quickly. Like even as an undergrad, he wanted it published. Yeah. And, you know, he published Planet Trilophon as a short story while he was an undergrad. He published several things right. as an undergrad. So it's not like he was just writing for, oh, I'm going to show my best friend and maybe my best friend will laugh. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, he was sending it out for the whole campus pretty much right off the bat. You know, so yeah. I, I think it's it's complicated, that, that audience in mind. And, like, he did want an agent. He did want a bigger audience. Um but yet academics you know, love him, in a way, as much as any other contemporary author in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I guess he would have been writing for, a, for an MFA seminar workshop audience at, at times um, during that period. Oh for, sh- oh, for sure. For sure. I think that's, that's a good point. So he's writing to Im- impress classmates, and he's also writing to impress whoever's teaching that seminar, if he likes them anyway. For sure. Um, can we get back to your writing a little bit? And, and you, you mentioned your, your dissertation. Is it two parts or three parts? Can you, you remind us of how it's structured again? Uh, it's, it's basically three parts. There's an intro and an afterward, but it's, um, it's basically three chapters. And it's on Broom. The first chapter is on Broom, and then the, the middle section is on the sort of inner novel period. And it kind of focuses on... Um, his essay, The Empty Plenum, uh, mm-hmm. about Vixen, uh, Markson's novel, Wittgenstein's Mistress, as a central text. And then the third um, part is about Infinite Jest. Cool. And you had written about Markson a bit uh, last year at the conference as well. Is that correct? That's right. And did you come to Markson through Wallace? I did. I did. Yeah. I came to Markson through that essay, actually. But then when I picked uh, that cool. novel up, um, I could not put it down. Oh, good, cool. I've never read it, and I've always wanted to, so I should. That's good incentive. I've probably sent out four copies of that novel to people. <laughs> just seriously, like in the mail, like you have to read this. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I'm obsessed with it, and I'm really obsessed with the you know the last four books that Markson wrote, um, starting with Reader's Block and ending with the last novel. I mean, th- those to me are you know, some of the greatest, like, achievements of our time and are still, I think, underappreciated. Um, oh, definitely. And, and, and you know, Wallace sort of reviewed... There's a lot of correspondence between Markson and Wallace in the Ransom Center. Mm. And I, I think Wallace, even though he really appreciated Wittgenstein's mistress, I don't think he really got what Markson was doing later. Mm. 
in in I, in what way? Like I, I you'd be educating me because I have the only other thing that I've cracked is this is not a novel and I haven't finished it yet. Uh, how can you not finish that? Right? <laughs> uh, talk to my dissertation director. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I was gonna say. <laughs> no, no, it's a very short book and it's very like uh, elliptical style and it's got uh, you know a couple. Of of lines per page, like 10 lines per page. Oh, I, like, I, I can see like it from where water. I'm sitting, believe me. It's, it's <laughs> at the top of the pile. <laughs> well, Markson has three others like that. I mean, it's same style. And my friend, uh, Evan Lavender Smith, who is a writer, and he wrote a book in the same style, he, he referred to those books as porn for English majors. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, just, they, just that aphoristic style. With the yeah. and, and the game of making the making the connections. Yeah, I mean it's just very addictive. It's I mean it's hard for me to stop once I get going on those. It's like page after page after page, and it's just so oddly and, moving. You know, you you look at it on the page and you think, how could this possibly engage me the way a long form narrative could when it's so choppy in like one sentence paragraphs? And then he'll just he'll he'll out of nowhere just hit you in the gut. Uh, it's very complicated too because he's doing a lot of different things there. You know, there's one one thing he does is there's a long list of other famous writers who are anti-Semites. Oh wow! And there's another one that's a long list of writers who didn't become famous until their 40s or 50s or 60s. Isn't there a list of suic- fictional suicides? Oh yeah, and and, is, and real suicides. And Incandenza is in that, right? Oh, right, and that's it. That's in reader's block. Okay. And Wallace had advised him to cut that. Oh, right. He was like, he was like, I really don't like that. I don't think it works. It's not, you know. He had some reason for it, and um, you know, Markson just sort of politely nodded his head and kept it in. <laughs> <laughs> like Wallace would have to peach on a lot of right, right. occasions. Just like, uh huh. Okay, thanks for your opinion. I'm leaving it <laughs> in. Yeah, no, it's that's it's funny. um it's amazing stuff, and I I really think um. The essay, and this is sort of what I pitched in my um, my proposal for the conference this year, is that the more the more stuff I look at in this internovel period um, of Wallace's that that's critical work, right? Like uh, literary criticism, yeah. and uh, even things like book reviews. Um, you can you can read his complaints and the and the things that he praises in in what he reviews or, or what he's talking about in a piece of critical, um, like in a critical essay, as sort of like punch lists for him to do in in terms of the things that he praises about the novel. And then if he has complaints about it, they're, they're things that he's like, never, ever again will I, will I do this. And I, I guess the, the biggest example of that I could give is in the Markson essay where he, he complains that when... Markson writes about Kate's backstory about the losing the child and the husband that he that was really for him like the only part that didn't work in the whole novel was this this sort of pat explanation or even with Markson it's not even an overt explanation it's just sort of a suggestion that's that's dropped in there in the stream of consciousness but he said I don't find that that works because if that basically if that explanation doesn't ring true with the reader as as a reason for the character acting the way that they're acting then that character fails for the reader so he he said you know you've already succeeded in her voice and in her story and in her situation you know narratively and formally um you didn't need to do that marks and like it, it was better without it and i think that's sort of why 
you get the lacuna that you get in Infinite Jest, the parts that that aren't there. You don't get the epiphanies for Hal and for Gately. Like, you don't, where they start their recovery, mm-hmm. um, you you get, because it's sort of like if, if he gave the explanation for what it was that finally, you know, they hit rock bottom and this was the thing they saw. They had this epiphanic sort of like varieties of religious experience, you know, William James-esque, <laughs> um, you know, AA testimonial-esque, um, right. seeing the light um, when they're down and out and hitting bottom, and that's mm-hmm. the beginning of their road to recovery. Well, if that didn't ring true for the reader, then the reader is it kind of, it's off-putting, right? Because you're like, I don't understand your motivation. That wouldn't have motivated me. But mm-hmm. by absenting those from the narrative, I think it makes it more universal because you kind of have to fill in. You're, you're faced with the evidence that it did work and that Gately is staying clean. Mm-hmm. And so, like, whatever it was, it was sufficient. And it's up to the reader to sort of fill that in, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair, but I think, well, I mean... Wallace gives that advice to Markson, who later takes it, because after Wittgenstein's mistress, he writes this book, Reader's Block, which also has a sort of Kate-like character in it, and it doesn't work as well as the other sort of aphoristic style, so he ditches that character altogether, and really the only character becomes really David Markson. And, well, the and, worst vice is advice, right? Yeah, that's that's been said. It's been said. Um, but I gotta say, your your description of your your dissertation is totally strange to me because I thought it was something completely different. That's just the that's just the middle <laughs> section. Um, uh, where I'm talking about what? sort of like the the um, wait, which part are you talking about? Uh, well, I thought you were writing about like recovery and addiction. And um, about the like, community in Wallace L. Yeah, that's the the afterword is all Wallace L. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and the intro is, I mean, and it's like, I mean, it's not just like tacked on. It's not getting short shrift. It's like you know, twenty plus pages. Um, hmm. The um, sort of history of Wallace L. Beginning back on the the pension L list. Like I actually, you know, used their search function and found the. Um, the post where it suggested that if you guys love Wallace so much, why don't you make your own list? The, uh, the vegan anarchists or whatever they were. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty much it. And in, <laughs> in, in Minneapolis and California. Right. And, um, so I, I mean, I think, could you explain a little bit more about, about this? Well, the, the, how, re- that, how that fits in or, well, the recovery angle, um, all right, so I, I cast Wallace as a as a sort of recovering theory addict. So he goes from a reliance, um, and I'm pulling part of this from the Max bio and, and some of from the from the primary text. Um, but in the Max bio, he talks about Wallace's reliance on on theory and like when somebody said in one of his creative writing seminars when he was at um, at Arizona that you know. Who who reads Derrida? Or I don't need to read Derrida. That like everybody in the room thought there was going to be a fight. That <laughs> that theory and at that stage in the game where he's writing Broom for Wallace is sort of like the badge of serious fiction. Yeah. Um. And and what separates serious fiction from just you know middle of the road type stuff? Um. Not fully engaged. Not fully aware of its of the history of American letters and its place within it. And um. But the way that Max casts that um, that use of, of theory, that insistence on theory in the early stuff, is that 
Wallace wasn't comfortable yet as a as a writer, and so he sort of relies on these outside authorities, these theorists and philosophers, to mm-hmm. imbue his fiction with a sort of gravitas that he doesn't feel like he's able to to give it himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time you get to Infinite Jest, he's he's very picky about what what he does and doesn't use and how he uses it. Like it's, there's this thing in philosophy that's the, the mention use distinction. And he actually, Wallace mentions this in the Marx and essay. Um, it's the difference between the, the, the opening sentence, right? The, um, in the beginning, I sometimes left messages in the street, Matt. Right. That's correct. Um, and then, so like the messages in that sentence, it's a mess. It's a mention of the message. And then the novel itself is like the last sentence is somebody is writing on this beach and that's so the first instance is a is a mention and the second one is a use of those messages so it's a difference in engagement right between like basically name dropping a theorist and then narrativizing in your fiction the consequences of living in a world that's governed by that theory (laughs) or that philosophy does that make sense Hmm. yeah i think so interesting yeah, I think that I think that's something he struggled with a lot, you know. And I'm sure you talk about this in Broom of the System versus Infinite Jest. Like, how do you, you know, who do you think is the governing theorist of Infinite Jest? <laughs> uh, if if I have to if I have to choose one, I'd, I'd say it's it's William James. Hmm. It's it's pragmatism. I mean, it's and it's it's a sort of he uses William James as a as a filter for anything else that comes in like he says in that that um that larry mccaffrey interview that uh the guy says well how do you justify using these sort of metafictional techniques that you that you you know deride others for using and and wallace says well the way that i decide if theory or an idea or a philosophy goes into my fiction is it has to do something beyond just showing itself as there beyond the mention of it, beyond a name drop. Like it has to have a function for the narrative. Right. And so if he can use this sort of um, theory or, or technique to engage it with the narrative and, and sort of weave it into the form and make the form sort of feed it through the theory as a function and it comes out the other side representative of that theory, like, you know, living in a world that's, you know, Wittgenstein's Tractatus or something. Um, what would it be like to live in that world would be an example of what he thought about Marxism that, that succeeded, right? That was a good use of theory. Um, whereas, you know, when he beats you over the head with the whole meaning is use speech, where he says meaning is use, meaning is use over and over again, this Wittgenstein maxim in Broom of the System, he looks back on that as a, as a mention and not as a use of it, right? I mean, that's surprising to me because I, I agree with you in a way that William James plays, you know, really integral role. Like he cites him directly in Infinite Chess. Mm-hmm. But to me, I mean, to me, whatever sort of overarching philosophy is over that part of or at least one third of the book is really um, Bill W. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But you and, know where and, Bill W. gets a lot of his ideas is James. Well, I mean, do you think that? You think Bill W. read William James? It's in the – it's in – it's in the big book. So tell us more about that. That's what I'm trying to get us to, is to the big book. So, All right. so, so you and Bill, I have been talking Bill about Bill W. That. is the guy who wrote the big book of AA. Is that right? That is, well, it's, 
you know, technically credited to, to for those of us who are Alcoholics totally Anonymous familiar. World right. Services, but, but yeah. there's there's a big section that's that's him. It's okay, basically yeah. divided into two sections. There's a sort of um, the doctrine and the 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 steps and introducing um, AA, and then the other half is uh, like a bunch of testimonials that are sort of like short stories. Right. Um, let's see here, man. You're gonna call me out on this, and I'm gonna have to figure out where. James no, no, is... no. It's fine. No, no. I, I think it's. I think it's interesting that here it is. You know, I got it. Wallace only cites a you know a few even proper names in Infinite Jest and William James. Varieties of religious experience right. is one of them. Yeah, yeah. In the Frega, context of Randy Randy Lenz. Right. <laughs> yeah, the cocaine stash. That's just a yeah. master stroke. Yeah. That originally really... was a medical textbook in the original drafts. Mm. Um, and he switches it to the the large print edition or whatever of of uh, this fictional yes. edition that doesn't even really exist. Um, but because they're they're published as two separate things. But this is Matt. This oh, is yeah. on page five sixty seven, and you know it doesn't matter what edition of this you have. They always keep the pagination the yeah. same, so that if you're in a meeting, that you know it doesn't matter if you have a library copy or you bought one from them. But it's uh, appendix two, and it's spiritual experience. Um. Let's see. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. And then skipping down, um, he says, Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time, um, and he goes on. But Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't recall him actually citing James, but I do hmm. remember being taken aback that, you know, in the big book, there's very little um, hesitancy to just straight up say, like, no, it's a religious experience. Yeah, and <clears throat> and it's and I think it's James's, like, the religious experience that he's talking about in varieties of religious experience that they're referring to there. Um, I'm trying to pull this this other index up. One of uh, my co-director Trish Travis um, wrote a book that's the the history of uh, it's the subtitle is a cultural history of the recovery movement from Alcoholics Anonymous to Oprah Winfrey, um, <laughs> and it's called Language of the Heart. And I'm just trying to look up James in here because I know this is where I I got some more connections between uh, Bill W. and James. Yeah, here we go. Go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves and I'll, I'll well, come back. Well, what I wanted to talk about was like what, you know, what, what interests me there is how if AA is pretty simplistic, like how could Wallace be, you know, convinced to join it? Mm. And, you know, as a writer and as a person who is, you know, incredibly smart, yeah. how does he how does he say like, OK, actually, this this is me. And I think really? a lot of it is, you know, something you and I have talked about before, Rob, which is the sort of rhetoric that goes on within AA's language is like super sophisticated. And it's, there are careful rhetoricians, especially that chapter that's addressed to agnostics. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that appeals to him that they, you know, put a lot of time and effort into thinking out all of these objections to why you would say, I don't believe in a higher power, hmm. you know, to, to them, they say, okay, well that's the key issue. And so we're going to devote a lot of time and energy into showing you why you need to, sort of just accept that what we've said is true. <laughs> is it all like experiential in that book in that context or do they bring in like the classical arguments for the existence of God or they, anything like that? They do both. 
Okay, so the cosmological argument. <laughs> well, it's actually they they sort of it, they have an, a unique spin on it. Um, mm-hmm. Have you read this part, Matt? Uh, we agnostics. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, they they do. There is the, the experiential part is the the testimonial section, right? Um, that's the stories of all these people who have hit bottom and and had an experience and you know mm-hmm. uh, that was spiritual in nature, and then you know recovered and. But they actually advance kind of a kind of a complex, nuanced. It's not complex, but it is nuanced uh, argument in in just a sort of you know just straight reason as their as their only ally. And they say they had a they had a tough time. They they start off because they're good rhetoricians. They they sort of appeal to you and want to identify with with get you to identify with them. And they say. Um, you know, we were skeptical at first too. Um, mm. You know, they say logic is great stuff. We liked it. We still like <laughs> it. Um, it is not by chance we were given the power to reason, to examine the evidence of our senses, and to draw conclusions. Um, we agnostically inclined would not feel satisfied with a proposal which does not lend itself to reasonable approach and interpretation. Hence, we're at pains to tell why we think our present faith is reasonable, why we think it's more sane and logical to believe than not to believe, why we say our former thinking was soft and mushy when we threw up our hands in doubt and said, we don't know. (laughs) Um, But they basically go on to say that they were, when they looked at it, they were already living by faith and what they had faith in was reason um, and their own ability to, to reason and and apply logic to the situation, but that right. they had but like look where that got us exactly. Of. And so yeah, they yeah. use they use the situation of the the alcoholic who's who's mm-hmm. got it bad enough to come in, you know, yeah. um, as a sort of a leg of their argument. Hmm. You know, like if you didn't have such a problem, then you know you wouldn't be reading this <laughs> argument anyway. So it's more of like a pragmatism angle, right? Like, it's absolutely pragmatic, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, you know James wrote a book called Pragmatism. Mm. Well, and what I find interesting is about it is it wouldn't have survived as a movement without that. Like right. it, it, it needed from the very beginning to be very pragmatic in saying, "Oh, you're, you know, you're, you don't believe in God, neither do we." So <laughs> but let's, just let's say just you get do. past that. Yeah. <laughs> let's just get past that then, and like uh, we'll call it a higher power, and your higher power can be, you know, AA. Exactly. Which is just this thing we just invented, and let's just agree to that. Right. Yeah. Oh man, you guys! That section um, where Randy Lenz is convincing—is it Clinette that his that his like crotch it could be her higher power? Oh, Do you remember that part? <laughs> God, <laughs> really what foul. a snake! Really so foul. foul, man! What a slime ball! It's like Lenz something Ted Cruz would say. <laughs> oh, you can man. edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, what I, what I found was, you know, in Infinite Jest, it is pretty subtle, and that. You know, what gets um, Don Gately straight is really just this working the program, right? Yeah. And that he doesn't dwell too much on the higher power thing. He just does what he's told. Mm. You know, if you you tell me to get a job, I'll get a job. You tell me to go to the halfway house, I'll go to the halfway house. Right. And that's sort of this routine, this unthinking routine is what saves him. But it's different in, in the actual AA literature and Bill W.'s story in particular is that he is a complete alcoholic, his life is unmanageable, and he meets a friend, and the friend is like former alcoholic who's gone clean, and he's like, how did you do it? And the guy just straight up says, like, I've got religion. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Comes to visit him. Like the- Yeah, comes to visit him and says, like, I've got religion now, hmm. and it's like, 
really religion that's it i tried that i don't think it would really work. well and you get a little aside there too where he's like oh great this is gonna this is why you're here because you're nuts right because like like the rabidly christian woman in aa who like plummets off the building and then gets swept up by the uh the, the updraft and through the glass into the building and then becomes rabidly christian from then on or like, <laughs> like the no two one Jehovah's witnesses that showed up at my door today oh nice got a visit from that from I the did. old watchtower i, I think Society. It's, it's because i told you guys that i would I would postpone an interview with the with Risen the Christ, risen Christ. <laughs> to do your show. Well, you know, they don't actually believe in a physical resurrection of Christ, but a spiritual one. So I have might, no doubt might... that if he exists, he sent these two. <laughs> but you know what this brings me back to is a conversation that Rob and I had had previously about a thing Zadie Smith wrote after Wallace's death. Yeah. Hmm. And she had brought up this very issue and she said something like, I pulled it up here. She said something like, she doesn't want to replace an ironist with a God botherer. Right. Like the word God need not be present. She'd rather use the phrase ultimate value or whatever name one has for it. It's what permits the few heroes in brief interviews to make their gestures on the strength of the absurd, making art that nobody wants, loving where they are not loved, giving without the hope of receiving. Hmm. And really, that sort of ultimate value, that's the same as saying, like, a higher power. Yeah, right? it oh, sounds yeah. kind of ambiguous, relativistic-ish. Uh, and it's like, you know, you can worship whatever then. I mean, she's buying into that very much that, you know, and Rob and I sort of had some disagreement over this. Like, it's very tough for me to, to square this with, like, whatever comes after religion. You know, or, like, whatever is contemporary religion. Like, this is kind of it. Hmm. What? Like ultimate value or oh yeah know, yeah her phrase oh, yeah. higher power. Right. I I think if she had stopped with you know here I am giving Zadie Smith writing advice, but if she had stopped <laughs> if she had stopped with the word God need not be present, like boom you're done like your point is made, <laughs> um, mm. and is and is a lot more universal I think. But I don't know mm. I th- man I thought I had finally brought you around to. Uh, to the correct interpretation there. <laughs> with, I'm really stubborn. With, I'm really um, stubborn with, with the everybody worships thing, with the um, with uh, with what bothered you and what bothered me initially about about that. I keep coming back to it still because uh, you know, to me, it, it is even if I make peace with it, it still gets to the heart very quickly of I think what Wallace was concerned with, hmm. and I think what he's trying to illustrate even back, you know before Infinite Jest, is about this addiction is what people worship. You know, or these, there's some kind of addiction we all have. There's something in your day-to-day that you think of more than anything else, I think Mm -hmm. is the best way that I can put it. Right. And and I buy that more than saying, oh, there's no such thing as atheism. Right, but I think that's, I think what he's saying there, because he knows this is only like a 20-minute show, is um is is he's using everybody worships because it's like a Nietzschean aphorism and it kind of like it sticks in there and you remember it but what he's what he's really saying is everybody has something that takes whether they realize it or not they spend more of their time than anything else physic like thinking about because attention is a big thing with him yeah it is. obviously and and that it's this this thing that sort of um that while your mind is in a neutral gear that it sort of drifts to naturally that it's those tendencies that he's talking about as 
as worship. At least that's the way yeah, that I square like the, the circle. Like the default unconsciousness, right? Yeah, yeah, the default mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, man. I thought I thought I had made a convincing <laughs> argument. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys tied this stuff back to uh, to Marath and altars? Uh, the, yeah, the choosing is everything. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. I don't know that we've talked about that. Have we, Matt? No, tell tell us more what you mean, Dave. Well, uh, like we talked about this with Robin in episode three, she she quite eloquently quoted Morath's section from memory about from memory about uh, choosing the things that we worship and and the altars choose our altars of worship carefully that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So I mean, obviously, highly resonant with the Kenyan speech and the stuff about AA that you guys have been writing about on Simple Ranger. Yeah, I guess I'm still I'm in, I'm in the point in my life where I'm surprised that this becomes such an issue and it is you know it's such an issue throughout your adult life about you know the book uh, catholics by brian yeah Moore, which, that's a great book oh, yeah. which he recommended yeah. to uh zadie smith and recommended to a lot of people right that's why i read it it's really about a priest who's you know 40 years in a monastery mm-hmm. and is really sort of losing his faith yeah and there's another book I would recommend called uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Do either of you know this book? No, I don't. I know the title. It's about, it's like a post-apocalyptic novel, mm-hmm. like the end of the world, and the only guy left who is a priest mm-hmm. and sort of has to like rebuild religion mm-hmm. over. Oh, cool. That's um, interesting. Yeah, you should check it out. But I, I, I'm surprised like just how frequently this comes up because as a young adult, you know, it's very easy to sort of leave religion behind hmm. and just say I, I have nothing to do with that I'm going to go to university I'm going to make my own way and I, I don't need any of this right and then to see even you know and you see that in Wallace like there's not a ton of religion in um, Room of the System right yeah yeah well I, I think he knows how off-putting it is um, <laughs> yeah and, he talks about that quite a bit right you know I, and Matt and I sort of we've talked about this and I have sort of similar backgrounds like I have uh, my, my grandfather's a Methodist minister, and so mm-hmm. like I grew up in the church, and and yeah. really the the <laughs> uh, I hope my mother's not going to listen to this. The place that I sort of figured out that I didn't it didn't believe in God was like I was a counselor at a church camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, Sweet irony. Huh? Well, I was just I was I was supposed to give a lesson about like why you believe, and I sat there mm-hmm. and I stared at the page, and it was like, well, shit. And you just felt that you didn't? Interesting. Well, I just, there were, you know, I could give all of the examples I'd heard all my life, but it was sort of this thing where, like, just going through the motions. And um, so, yeah, my lesson that Mm -hmm. next day was, is my, you know, my worst day in the classroom, that was way worse than than any of those days in the classroom. But, like, I've sort of gotten to the point where I've I've decided that if I I care about people Mm -hmm. that... Um, to try and disabuse them of the notion of of religion um, or anything that they that they take solace in that I don't think is ultimately destructive in their personal lives, mm-hmm. I guess, right. is mm-hmm. is a bit dubious for me. Um, like because if what I care about is their well being and their happiness, then then why? Like I'm not going to argue with my parents about God, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And good luck, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, but you know, it's it's funny. Um, my grandfather, the older he gets, the more I feel like he's you know he's interested in things like reading books about the the cosmos and the universe, and like it mm-hmm. it 
he's starting to sort of let some of these questions sit and, and percolate and, and struggle with them in a way that he wouldn't have let himself, I think, maybe mm. when he was in, um, when he was, you know, we had a congregation. And right, yeah. um, Well, you know, it's interesting, like, Christianity has a, has a pretty amazing uh, tradition of, of, like, being able to entertain questions and doubt and and all that kind of stuff augustine yeah yeah totally yeah but then in the kind of like a southern evangelical like model there's doesn't seem to be as much room for that kind of thing oh no sir yeah about zero yeah yeah (laughs) so i i come also from like a christian background and and still consider myself a christian theist i teach at a christian school so it's really interesting for me to, to hear you guys take on this aa stuff and and how you approach wallace's just, questions about just about to be clear like atheism, i don't i feel yeah. like numinous like i i'm capable of feeling the the sub, the pull of the sublime like i think it's amazing yeah, that yeah, the yeah. world continues to spin and that <laughs> we have not blown the whole thing up yet like that's amazing to me yeah, like yeah. the you know the picture of earth from space and then imagining everything that's happening on it is like what's not magical about that mm-hmm. i just it's the layer of dogma on top of that that kind right, of yeah gets to me and it's it's interesting you talk about canadian uh religion because i read a story at the walrus today i don't yeah. know if you're familiar with this magazine yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, canadian magazine about uh somebody in the church of what's the the national church up there um on the on the convex city side i don't know if you could say anglican? there is anglican yeah i mean i mean there's all kinds of denominations but i don't think you could say there's a national well, this church. actually had like legislation backing its its formation and stuff but um, uh, okay it might be it's probably the anglican church of canada or something like that then but it was an article about a, a minister at one of these churches oh you were talking was, about the united church yeah 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 uh, so who's, who's an avowed that, right? atheist yeah 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 totally and the united um, church has, has gone on a very like very extreme path away from orthodoxy for sure and that's a great example of it. But, I, but when Matt talks about having trouble with um, the everybody worships thing, yeah. I like I wanna I wanna point him to that congregation and be like, this woman is an avowed <laughs> atheist, but she still like she sees the value in in the tradition and the the community. Community, and the, right? Yeah. You know, and this this common sort of touchstone, but they've just mm-hmm. sort of replaced it with humanity, right. um, like this pan-humanic general sort of goodwill thing. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what they're getting at in 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 AA. Actually, the, they say that the the religious impulse is something that is uh, in every person, and that you just have to sort of tap in. Like you've had it all along, you just have to recognize this common capacity for feeling. Hmm. I, I guess I'm just surprised that it keeps coming back to this. You know, that, <laughs> it's probably my that, fault. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I, not your fault at all. I mean, Zadie Smith brings it up, right? Like, George Saunders brings it up. Yeah. Like, all sure. of these other people who are observant readers, and Wallace himself brings it up. And it's in The Pale King. It's in Good People. And, you know, his his ideas there, I think, are designed to get to really big issues really quickly. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, obviously a huge issue that... I don't think people associated with Wallace, you know, on the evidence of infinite jest, mm. but I no. think it's because it was deceived and it was wrapped in <laughs> a, 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 yeah. you know, and well, this is interesting. You guys talked about some of the, the bigger philosophical influences in infinite jest. And in my thesis that I'm writing right now, I'm kind of arguing that St. Paul is a major, one of these philosophical influences on the text. 
in the way that infinite jest deals with salvation or soteriology mm-hmm. um the idea of people being redeemed or or reco- human recovery basically conversion stories yeah conversion narrative that kind of thing so yeah what do you, what do you guys think of like the the term post secular is is talked about in wallace studies that you know america or you know the west is coming into a time where it's gone from this sort of like protracted atheism into a period that we could call maybe post-secular and now a restoration of some kind of like faith or spirituality system is becoming a more prominent sort of approach to life. Mm. That's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's... I think a lot of people identify as religious but really mm. just want to say that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure there's posturing. Well, you know, I mean, you, you ask the average person who says they're a Christian what the Ten Commandments are, I, you know, I'm pretty sure... <laughs> like 80% of them aren't going to be able to give them to you. Yeah, verbatim. Well, it's just sort of basic stuff. They even paraphrased, you know, like that's <laughs> that's kind of the law if you're a Christian, right? Uh, um, yeah, sort of, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's in the Old Testament, so it's maybe not like in the forefront, but yeah. It's a simple well, list of 10. Come on, you guys. Let's not hold them to too high a standard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Zadie Smith brings it back to this that, you know, God is love and, you know, he lacks. One thing that's hard to find in Wallace's writing is a lot of basic human connection. And mm. Franzen made a, made a similar point in that you don't see a lot of normal, loving relationships in Wallace's right, work. Yeah. And, you know, if God is love, then it's not really present there either. <laughs> And, you know, I have problems with both of those interpretations, but I think, you know, there's there's something to the fact that he is not really offering much salvation, not really offering a way out. That, you know, your students earlier said it was really sad, all this sadness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of despair and bleakness in Oblivion yeah, and, in the Pale, sure. and in the Pale King. Yeah. I mean, they're both pretty dark. Well, and he said he wanted and, to do something sad with Infinite Jest. Yeah. Right, and but they don't really offer a way hmm. out, you know. And I think that readers, maybe following his trajectory, you know, would be fair to ask for like the flip side. Okay, what's if this is so bleak? Then how do we escape? <laughs> right. It? Um, so I'm kind of my approach to this question, Matt, in my thesis is that Infinite Jest presents a spectrum of salvation. So you have a very low end of a spectrum, which is what you're talking about. And then you've got signs of hope in, say, Don Gately. And then you've got almost kind of a Christological model in Mario, almost. Um, And that's actually what my paper is, my presentation for the upcoming Wallace Conference is on, is on Mario's role in the salvation narrative of Infinite Jest. Oh, wow. I can't wait to hear that. So that'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that's... You know that that type of stuff is really interesting because it's not you know it's not obvious or it's not like in your face like you need to do this. exactly. Mario's it's, scene it's in the subway, over. yeah, is was maybe if it's not the most moving scene in it to me, like with Barry Loach, you mean? Yeah, yeah. where he yeah, reaches yeah, out and yeah. touches his hand. Yeah, that's a big part of what I'm saying. Like I I had to I had to stop and put it down and just right. shut it for a minute. Like yeah. it that really that got to me on a deep level. Mm-hmm. And the conversations with him and him and Hal, he's just so yeah. he's like the anti anti Orin, you know, and like yeah. Hal's just kind oh, of in totally. the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't yeah, I I'd say he's he's a he's a source of of hopefulness, but again, it's, you know, yeah. as an ideal character or one that a that a reader's supposed to identify with ideally it's kind of a 
kind of a big ask with Mario. Yeah, yeah. He's almost like non-human in some ways, like in terms of his character, like he's guileless, right? Yeah, he's definitely, and he's definitely physically described like in this sort of um, yes. Caliban-esque, um, mm-hmm. you know, but he, you know, he's described as having claws and, and things yeah. like that. Brady kinetic and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a way, though, I think that all three of those, you know, are Wallace. And mm-hmm. he's had a lot of self-disgust and looked at himself as a deformed and messed up person. But if you if you go back and look, there's an interview with the real Pat Montesian, mm. you know, who was the, the director of... Granada the, House? Granada House. And... She says something like Wallace was like the most kind and caring person to these addicts, right? Mm-hmm. Addicts are often like throwaway people. Right. And that society society looks down on them right. and says, you have ruined your life. You've lost your job, your house, your kids. You really don't deserve anything. Mm-hmm. And Wallace, as a person, at the time he's writing this book or thinking about writing this book, is the one who is reaching out and touching them and helping them get to their meetings and get to their appointments and, you know, caring about them when no one else did. And to me, that's like, yeah, that's Barry Loach. That mm-hmm. is the, that is the Christ-like thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I kind of see the writing of Infinite Jest as, as maybe, and this, I, if I'm pressed on this, it's, I may not be able to come up with like a one, two, three sort of evidence list, but I feel like, I feel like, Writing Infinite Jest for Wallace was was working the steps, yeah, um, and was um, and like all right. So this this thing you were just talking about, Matt, with him driving people to appointments and things like that, um, that you know, I don't, there's a part, and they kind of bury it in in the big book where they say that that getting clean and getting sober is really only um, a means to an end. That that's not the ultimate goal of Alcoholics Anonymous. Have you have you read that part? Right. Yeah, right. Well, in, in fact, we I touched on this a little bit on Simple Ranger. Ah, that's making me look terrible because I did read it. Um, in the sentimental sentimentality one? Well, it, it, maybe it's one and I haven't published, so I'll let you off the hook there. But say, <laughs> that's a rare occasion, Matt Booker, letting someone off the hook. <laughs> no, 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 but uh, you're right. And let's say that, that you know once you're clean, it's really about serving others. It's about servitude. Well, the word they use is use. Right. Useful. And I hmm. think that for a guy who had finished that first big novel um, and, and felt like a, a prodigy and felt like it was impressive and like the big like theoretical underpinning thing, like, or at least one of the two, was meaning as use and understanding this, this concept of use hmm. um, as socially determined, um, like it is in, in the later Wittgenstein, um, he, he gets to AA and you know, is in a, is in a, a low place personally. And they're telling him, you know, yeah, getting sober is a good idea, but in the end, what we want from you is for you to be of use. Um, that, that I'm sure that that had some, some resonance, you know, mm-hmm. um, it with as much time as he had spent thinking about Use and I know he's thinking about it in the Markson essay because he does a whole footnote about the mention versus use distinction, uh, which is he credits uh, a German guy Frege with who whose name actually comes up in Infinite Jest. Um, so I, he was a mentor of Hegel, Frege. Yeah, yeah and so oh. 
it's like I know this this whole use thing is it's I see it everywhere now that I've started looking, um, and I I don't know it's just I there are things that when I came across them in 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 the big book when I was reading through that that I thought okay I can see this like I can see his ears pricking up at this part you know yeah no I think the whole idea appealed to him greatly and there's a part in Infinite Jest like if you do a search on the word coffee and he, <laughs> he's, he's talking about refilling the coffee urns right. and you're sitting there in a meeting and you're thinking like, what am I even doing here? I'm just putting out these folding chairs and scraping this nasty coffee grounds <laughs> out. But, but by doing that, you're sort of facilitating and you're being useful by yeah. providing this space for other people who might walk in off the street, literally their first day of sobriety. So he, I think that appealed to him greatly is like, I can't do much, but I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can make this shitty coffee and put out these folding chairs and sit around and have the bright lights on and we can talk for an hour. This is my contribution, right? Yeah. Right, and it, I right. think it also ties into the, the stuff that they hit the early AAs with, which is just the, the importance of rote discipline and of routine. Like Gately talks about hitting the knees every AM and PM and thanking yeah. the God that he doesn't believe in, um, <laughs> you know, for one more day. And the, the whole one day at a time, it's just, it's another routinized sort of um, yeah. regimen that they stick to. And the, the coffee's part of that and the use is part of that. But I think, you know, you're talking about opportunities for salvation, Matt. Um, are we shown any way forward? You know, I know, I know he's on record all over the place in interviews saying things like it's not enough to just present a picture of how bad everything is, right? That you can't, like diagnosing does not lead to the cure. And, the prognosis. Yeah, and so yeah. You've, got to, you've got to offer a way forward. It's not enough, you know, you to apply CPR to the parts of us that are still human. And right. I think the thing that, that I was, I kept coming back to, when you were like, where is the, where's the hope? Where's the way forward is there is one thing that's shown that works in AA and it works paradoxically, almost inexplicably for the, for the characters. And I think for Wallace too, and that's just AA. It's just the, the doing it, the, the, the ugly, the, you know, the, the sacrificing in myriad petty unsexy ways every day mm-hmm. that he comes back to in the, in the speech is the rote, the grunt work, the unthanked work, like the, the the this comes up in the Pale King with your call to account, you know, and heroes. <laughs> um, oh yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, it's um, so good, so funny. Um, so I don't know. I think yeah, it's not it's not pretty, and it's not a Hollywood sort of like, and they lived happily ever after, or then and then everything was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, like he doesn't want, I think the, the last thing that he would have wanted to do with, with pointing away forward or applying CPR to the parts that are human is, is fill your head full of nonsense or, or stuff that he didn't really believe. And he's, he's like, yeah, you can make it work, but it's ugly and it's hard and you're not going to want to do it. Um, but the routine does work. Or at least it worked for me. Does that make any sense, Matt? Or am I just talking shit? No, no, no. It's I'm just digesting it because it makes a ton of sense. And um, you know, I, I would love to talk to you about it for like two more hours. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, I have talked way too much in this conversation. N- n- no, not at all. No but way, great. I I do want to get you know your final thoughts on you know some of the subjects we talked about, and if there's anything we haven't talked about, like. 
throw it out there now and we can talk about it in a future time. I don't know. There was a um a section I downloaded a, a video from that um that Italian thing, the La Conversazione. Um you guys know what I'm talking about? Where Wallace yeah, was at the Conversazione. Yeah. yeah. Where I think you don't hear the question. It's sort of like the, it's sort of like brief interviews. But you don't like the he's giving an answer to a question and he's looking straight into the camera and the question is something like, um, where do you, like, about postmodernism or realism or something like that. And Wallace is asked to, like, sort of describe his own writing or sort of situate himself. And he said, I like to think that I'm one of a group of writers who are writing now who try to use the sort of, um, postmodern lineage that they they sort of inherited and all the meta stuff and all the theory and all the you know intersection with continental philosophy and analytic philosophy to do to get at some basic human verities and i th- i think that his whole point with the theory stuff and and saying that no writer writing now can afford to regard theory as divorced from his own concerns no matter how stratospheric um, is his way of sort of like pounds make it new where mm. he, he's like, you know, the emotions don't change. Human emotions don't change. The people have felt the same basic love and hate and jealousy and fear, you know, back to the stone age. But what you have to do with literature, your job is to make it resonate with your reader. And the way that you do that is that you show them, you present a world that is recognizable as their own, right? And people talk all the time, I know I've said it more than once, about the experience of reading Wallace as the voice in your head, mm-hmm, yeah. um, right. albeit a, a more compassionate and better educated and bigger vocabulary. <laughs> but like, the, I think the, the theoretical stuff and the, the, the obsession with postmodernism for him is, is his way into making it new, to making it resonate with the, the the community that he knows, and that's an academic community of um, you know privileged <laughs> white people. Right. Um, but you know, you write for you write what you know, and so I, I think his later stuff, his stuff after Broom, is uh, his attempts to connect with the reader. He he can't let go of the theory that he's theory addicted. That he struggles with that the whole time because that's his way. In that's his way to make it relevant as literature that you'll be interested in reading as a serious reader, and um, but to also use that to, to to say I'm not letting any of this theory in or any of this philosophy in um, just for its own sake. It has to be able to do something. Has for, to have use. Yeah, it has to resonate with the reader. You know, get get rid of the technique to save the emotion kind of thing. Yeah. Spot on. That's man. awesome. So people can find what you guys have been writing about this stuff at simpleranger.net. Yes, sir. And right. you guys are posting, uh, what's the timeline? Weekly? Once a week? Movies sporadically. Erratically. Cool. Uh, yeah, I. ever since I told my director about the address, <laughs> if she sees something show up there and I'm late on a deadline... It is my ass. So. Oh man, I have I have the same thing with Infinite Winter with these posts, and I could just if my supervisors knew about it, they would just be like, "Dude, where is your thesis?" I Why might send her a link to this podcast after I graduate. <laughs> yep. At least we're close, right, Rob? We're right. getting close. It's almost 
It's almost done. Uh, well, thank you guys for having me on, man. Thank you for, so much oh, for coming on. It was great talking. And I'm to you, sorry man. for monopolizing the conversation. Hey, well, not at, all. not at all. But I mean, like that's what we want. We bring guests on so that we can hear other people talk about Wallace. So that's right on, man. Well, I just, I'm just leery of my wife's advice. Before the last thing she said to me was, "Don't talk the whole time." Just uh. <laughs> like don't, don't do like you do with me when you talk about Wallace. Don't just sit and sermonize. Just have a conversation. <laughs> don't be a maniac. Oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> so, Rob, where can people find more of your stuff online? You're on Twitter. Where Where are your things? Ah, oh, man, I have the worst Twitter handle in the world. Um, hey, what does that mean? <laughs> it's Latin. Uh, yeah, it's, Latin, right? it's I. I got so sick of Trump when I finally decided to join Twitter. Like Nick was saying, he held out and held out. Right. That when I finally went to join. Like, I'd had a couple of drinks, and I was trying to, like, pick a, a unique handle, and just, it was like, nope, nope, nope. And I was like, okay, fine. I will write, my strength is in my work in Latin. This mean labore, is that it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and see if anybody's taken that. How's that, smart guy? And it was like... Taken, and I was like, "Ha!" And then the next day, I was like, "That was the dumbest thing I could have ever done." Well, you don't. At least you don't have a two after your name like my Twitter handle does. <laughs> Dude, two will be so much easier. To <laughs> I guess. Um, so just, if you just search, go to go to one of you guys that has a that has a recognizable and 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 easily <laughs> typeable, and just look for my name. Is the easiest way to there find you. There you go. Guys. Cool. And you're on <laughs> academia.eu as well. Check I out am. Rob there. Awesome. Great. Rob, thanks again, man. It's great talking to you. Thanks for and, having me. And uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully at the Wallace Conference. I enjoyed this it, year. Rob. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, Good conversation. Matt, cool. we're going to miss you this year, man. And um, yeah. You let me know if I can just come, like, if I can call on a bomb threat to whatever it is you got to do that day. <laughs> yeah, to your family don't reunion do, or whatever. Don't, don't, don't do that, but just come to Austin at any point. Anyone who's a listener, like, I will be offended if you don't come to Austin. And he's at serious. Some point. Yeah. And if you don't call me, and in fact, I want to give a shout out to a listener, uh, Matthew Alexander. I had drinks with him the other night in Austin, and he was a he's here doing research at the Ransom Center from the University of Liverpool. Awesome. So, boom, Matthew Alexander. Very cool. Uh, same goes for me. If you're ever in like Kelowna, BC, which would be never, um, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I know there's a couple listeners in Vancouver that it'd be fun to hang out with. So yeah one of these days cool uh matt where can people find our things we are we're at concavity show on twitter and instagram yep. and we're concavity show at gmail.com is that's that right? right you got it man nailed it so if, if you want to email us um i still have some bookmarks <laughs> yeah, if, you yeah. want, if you want a pale king bookmark <laughs> uh just hit us up on gmail yes and i'll, I'll send those awesome out. yeah you we guys... love we love hearing from you guys we love messing around on twitter and instagram keep keep the feedback coming it's a blast yeah yeah this is this is the highlight of my bi-weekly period so you guys keep keep on keeping on <laughs> oh thanks rob you're, you're sweet man <laughs> all right take from me what i stole This is the part that you're going to need to edit out where I sort of make noises <laughs> with my mouth. No problem. <laughs> um... <laughs>